Welcome to another episode of the Birdsand Academy podcast. This is the show for online course creators who want to build a profitable business by sharing your skills and knowledge. This is your host, Welly Mulia. If you're not listening to this on our website, go to academy.birdsand.co slash eight to get your show notes. This show is brought to you by Birdsand Email Marketing Tool, the only email marketing tool specifically created for online course creators. Get your free forever account at birdsend.co. That's bird as in the flying bird and send as in sending emails, birdsend.co. Today, we have another special guest. His name is Danny Ini. Danny is a best-selling author, sought-after business consultant and founder of Miracy, which provides business education for online course creators to impact their community and change the world. Danny started out just like most online entrepreneurs with an idea and message to share, but no idea how to do it. He made several, several wrong turns before really understanding the audience first paradigm and how to apply it to online business. He has helped more than 5,000 value-driven online entrepreneurs achieve their own version of success. Danny, it's great to have you on the show. Well, it is a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thank you for having me. I know that you have... Um, your newest book called Leverage Learning just out a few months ago. Can you talk us through what that book is about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as context, I've been in the world of you know, online business and teaching experts and professionals how to take their knowledge and skills and turn it into a leveraged vehicle for income, you know, online courses. I've been doing that for a number of years. And I've written about that quite extensively with leveraged learning it's really a broadening of scope to looking at how the world of education, um, re- referring specifically to post-secondary, so not for children, um, but post-secondary education is changing, and you know, experts delivering courses is a part of that, but there's a lot more to it than that. So we talk about in, in the book the changing needs that education has to fulfill in, in the world of the present and future. We talk about how things like college and university are really not living up to that challenge and what opportunities and, uh, and realities that creates. Cool. So um, you mentioned about not living up to the challenge. Uh, you, do you mind like telling us why do you, why you think that is so? That is the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into this, but fundamentally, the world has been changing, and the pace of that change is accelerating. So, whereas you know, 30 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you could go to school and learn the stuff you need to know for a job, and that stuff will be relevant for most of your career. Mm-hmm. Today, it's not just that you know the things that we need to know have changed, but they continue to change. And there's a great line that I read in a book recently, and I can't remember which book it was. I want to give credit. But it's something to the effect of, in a rapidly changing world, the learners are the ones who will thrive, and the learned will be exquisitely qualified for a world that no longer exists. And our model of education historically has been one that makes you learn it. It means you know things. And what we need in order to thrive in the modern world is not to know things, but to be able to figure things out. 
and um, college historically, and, and the president has done just a, a terrible job of that, and yet the cost of that education continues to rise. Cool. So um, are you suggesting that people can forget about college and then they just go straight into um, doing like taking online courses or maybe um, not really not those formal education? Are you suggesting uh, people should go down that, that path? So the answer is that it depends. There are three three buckets of education in a post-secondary context. So once you've graduated high school, essentially, as an adult, there are three categories of education. There's foundational adult education, which is um, you know, essentially the, the foundations that you need to thrive in, in the world. Um, and, and that's what colleges often pretend they're delivering with non-vocational degrees. They say, you know, we train you for nothing, but we educate you for everything. We teach you how to think. And that's great in theory, but the data shows that that's not happening. It's not actually being delivered. So there's that need for foundational adult education. Then the second category or second bucket is last mile education. It's the bridge between whatever your foundation is and a career. And that can be as simple as an internship or a coding boot camp. It can be as elaborate as medical school. Right? It can be very involved. And then the third bucket is continuing education over the course of a lifetime, over the course of a career. And that tends to be just enough, just in time, as opposed to, you know, I'm going to take four years out of my life and hope that the stuff I'm learning ends up being relevant. Mm -hmm. So I'm not advocating for any kind of blanket path. You know, everybody should not go to college. Everybody should do fill in the blank something else instead. What I'm advocating for is that people have to be more self-directed and take more ownership about the trajectory that's going to get them to where we want to go. I mean, if you think about any big investment that we want in our lives, and college for many people, especially in the U.S., is a big, big investment. They're looking at tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars. We're looking at, you know, ostensibly two to four years, but it takes the average American seven years to finish a four-year program. So, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars, four to seven or more years. There is no other area of life that we make that kind of investment and say, well, you know, I just hope it works out. You know, we don't do that. We, we make those investments, but we make those investments consciously because we expect them to get us to whatever it is we think it'll get us to. So at whatever juncture you are in your life, right, whether it's that foundational piece or the last mile into a career or continuing over a lifetime, is college a way that you can get that education? Yes. Is it the best way? Maybe, maybe not. Often not. Sometimes yes. But that's something that you need to investigate as an individual and decide for yourself. And there isn't a blanket path. I mean, I think that the biggest shift is that, you know, historically it's been a very assembly model, uh, assembly line model of education, right? Everyone goes to elementary school and everyone goes to high school and everyone goes to college and everyone gets their first job. Everyone ha follows the same path. It's very standardized. And the world that we're growing into is a world of personalization. It's a world of individual paths. So, you know, often people ask me, Danny, what should it be instead? And they're, they're expecting the same standardized assembly line paradigm, just, you know, let's swap out one of the stations with something else. But it's, it's really a whole shift in, in the way people need to take ownership of their education and development as a whole.
Okay, cool. So what um, you are in the having having been in the online course business for so long in this industry for so long, what do you think is the um, is the one misconception that online course creators have? Um, just one. Um, that's a that's you a can, tough you can, one. <laughs> yeah, you can give a few. You can give a few. Uh, the reason why I said one is because I mean um, there are always a lot of reasons for when I ask these kind of questions. So I tend to focus on one, but go ahead and you can give a few if you want. Well, here's here's a very important one. I don't know if it's the one because there are multiple, but I mean a big important one that comes to mind is that there are a lot of fundamental misconceptions around what. Um, what creates a real transformation and what justifies the investment that you want to charge in exchange for that transformation. So something that I talk about um, a lot, one of my earlier books, Teach and Grow Rich, addresses this in detail, is the distinction between information and education. And it's not that one is better than the other. They're just different and they serve different purposes. So information, the um, real-world analog, is a book in a bookstore. Mm -hmm. And a book in a bookstore is great for certain things. It's great for exposing you to ideas that you weren't exposed to before. It's great for broadening your horizons. It's great for capturing your imagination. It's great for integrating new knowledge into an existing body of expertise. But here's the thing. Information is not good for developing competence. Right? Nobody expects to read a book and then be good at the thing they read about. That's not how books work. And that's not a criticism of books. That's just, you know, that's not what it is. And because of that, books are not very valuable. Right? You go to a bookstore, you pay however much you pay for the book, and it's usually not a lot, $20, $30, whatever. And then you walk out of the bookstore, and nobody owes you anything. Not the bookstore owner, not the publisher, not the author. You got the book, now it's all on you. There's no shared accountability for your success because you got some information and you do with it what you do with it. And it wasn't expensive for all those reasons. And that's fine for information. But then education is something that's meant to be much more transformative. And in order to do that, it has to be a lot more immersive. So the real world analog to that would be a course in a university. And there's a lot of things that are not great about universities, but there's also things that they do right. It tends to be immersive, it's involved, and you do expect that at the end of a course you have some degree of competence and fluency and capability and expertise in the area that you studied. And that takes much more of a commitment on the part of the student, and the responsibility for success is shared between the student and the teacher. It's a partnership. Mm-hmm. Now, that is great because a lot of the so-called online online courses that you find out there, they're not really educational experiences. They're information. They just happen to be in video format maybe, but it's just a bunch of information and you're watching and you consume and then you know you do with it what you do with it and there isn't a lot of responsibility on the part of the teacher. And that's okay if you're not look, looking to charge a lot of money or deliver a real transformation. But if you want to charge a lot of money, then you have to deliver a transformation because, you know, that's how the deal works. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you've got to think about the learning process differently. There there are three steps in a journey of learning. The first step is the consumption or exposure to the new ideas. 
And that's what you know most courses do. You watch the videos, you listen to the audios, you read the articles, you hear the lectures, you, you are consuming the ideas, you're being exposed to them. And that's a good start, but that's just the information. The second step is the application, taking what you learned and doing something with it. And that can be theoretical, you know, you're doing exercises and worksheets in, in the course, or it can be real, I'm doing things in my business or in my life and, you know, putting into practice. And then the third step is iteration and feedback. It's when you get feedback from the world around you, and that can be in the form of just, you know, consequences of your actions, right? I tried to market something, the customers weren't interested, and so I have feedback, <laughs> nobody bought. Mm -hmm. Or it can be um, more directed and nuanced, which is where you have an instructor or a coach advising you and guiding you. And the bulk of the learning happens in the later two stages, right? The bulk of the learning happens in the process of application and feedback that leads to iteration. And so, if you want to create something valuable and transformative, then you can't just share the ideas and expect the students to do the rest. You have to engineer an experience that allows for application and feedback. And all of that together is what creates a really valuable and transformative learning experience. Um, the misconception being that uh, people are seeing these two things as the same, like education and information, and they don't understand that there's actually a huge difference? Is that the misconception? Yeah, that, that's, that's the key misconception. And the idea that if I want to create an online course, I just need to create some good videos explaining stuff and maybe have some handouts or worksheets and put them mm -hmm. in a membership site, and that's a good course. Usually that is not a good course. Okay, cool. So you mentioned about the trees stages the uh, exposure consumption and application of, of course the last step is the iteration and feedback mm -hmm. and uh what would you say is um a good online course of course will have to have this uh feedback mechanism to the students like uh, so that they have accountability that they are actually they, are, they enroll in your course they bought your course and then you you as a teacher you want to make sure that they apply what you teach how do you go about making sure that uh, this happens? Um, so there's a number of ways that you can structure it, and I'll share two examples. These are things that we do in, in different courses that we run internally. So one of our um, flagship programs is called the Course Builders Laboratory. We teach experts and professionals how to build and sell their courses. And so there are video trainings and audio materials and, and written materials and all that, but we know that that's only going to take the students so far because sooner or later they're going to have a question around how do I apply this to my business or this is what I did, did I do it right? Mm -hmm. And so every student in our program gets a dedicated coach, someone on my team who knows the subject matter and has real expertise that I've trained personally, someone who is going to get to know them and their business and follow their work and give them feedback and make sure they're on track. Um, that is something that works very effectively in the context of that course. So there's a coaching model where you can create that application and feedback loop. Now, we have another program called the Business Ignition Bootcamp. And this is a free program that we run periodically. It's application-based, so people have to apply in order to get in. So basically, if people are not serious, then we don't let them in because it's a lot of work. And they have to do a substantial amount of work over the course of the boot camp, which runs three to six weeks, depending on how we're running it. 
And each module involves two phases. The first phase is where you get, you know, you've received the lessons, you've received the materials, and then you get some homework. And so you have to do your homework. You have to do the exercises. And these are designed to help you expand your thinking around business and opportunity. And you submit your work. You have to submit your work. And if you don't submit your work, you're removed from the boot camp. So that's the first phase. But the second phase is a peer feedback system. After having submitted your work, you are then shown the work of three of your peers. And it's your job to look it over and give them feedback. And this can be a very effective structure if done appropriately. A, it creates scalability, and it's you know, very valid feedback. There's good research showing that if it's organized correctly, this sort of peer feedback results in the same type of feedback that a teacher would be giving. And very importantly, you get to look at more work, but you're, you're not as close to it, right? It's when we do our own homework, we're very attached to it. We're very close to it, especially if it's dealing with our own business. Whereas when we're critiquing other people's work, there's more distance. We're less emotionally invested, and that allows us to see more clearly. And we've actually found that some of the best learning and you know, connecting of dots happens when people are critiquing and giving feedback to their peers. So these are two very different structures, and there, there are other things that you can do as well. But essentially, you need to think about, well, what kind of feedback is important and valuable for the student to receive in order for them to get the outcomes that you want? And then what is a scalable and cost-effective way for you to deliver it? Right. And, Danny, so how did you get started with this, uh, this industry? I mean, how... Uh, how, what, what made you decide something happened or maybe you decide uh, you, you follow the mentor that leads you to, into this whole industry? How did you get started? Um, by accident. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been an entrepreneur, I like to say, for longer than my adult life. I quit school when I was 15 to start my first business. Mm -hmm. And I've always had a kind of love-hate relationship with education. Love because I think education is the most important thing in the world. It is literally the greatest vehicle and tool for empowerment that the world has ever seen. It's what makes it possible for us to achieve more than we can today. And hate because the formal processes of education that are out there are usually terrible. And so most of my career, ironically, as a you know, high school dropout, most of my mm -hmm. career has been in the business of education in some way, shape, or form. So education technology companies and teaching companies and so forth. And a little more than a decade ago, this is in the late 2000s, I was building an educational technology company. It was a software company. We developed technology that helped children learn how to read. Mm. And at the time, you know, we built a prototype and we raised some money and the experts loved it and the kids loved it. But I was a young and inexperienced CEO in what, in hindsight, is one of the most complicated industries on the face of the earth. And... By the time I figured out what I needed to do and how to make things work, we ran out of money. And just as we got ready to raise more from investors, it was September 2008. The markets crashed and the bottom fell out from under everything. Mm. And so I tried to make it work for a while, but you know, there was no money to be had. Everything was a mess at that time. And I walked away from that experience with about a quarter of a million dollars in personal debt because I took a lot of the losses on personally to protect my investors. Mm. And... The thing about you know going through that kind of a business failure or setback is that, I mean, any entrepreneur who's experienced that knows we as entrepreneurs invest so much of ourselves and our identity into our startup that 
it's not just that it's financially devastating, it's personally devastating. It's, it's yep. a lot like going through a really bad breakup. Yes. And when you go through a really bad breakup, you're not ready to start dating right away, right? You need some time to just lick your wounds. And so that's the space, that's the headspace I was in. You know, I was like, what am I going to do next? Well, I don't want to put all my energy into a new business and I don't want to raise money and I don't want to hire employees. I wanted something that was low commitment that I could do on the side and I needed to pay bills. And so I said, maybe I'll start a blog and teach some of the things I've learned about marketing, about business. And that's what I did. And one thing led to another, and it really struck a chord with the market, and there was a lot of value found in what I was sharing. And that business, my, my rebound business, essentially, ballooned into what it is today. We serve you know, close to 100,000 online entrepreneurs. We have thousands of students. I employ 25 people. Um, and you know, sometimes the rebound is the one. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, when did you start selling your your first course after you after you uh, rebound from 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 the uh, from your wounds? The first course that I sold was in um, late 2011, early 2012, and that was a course about um, guest posting on on major blogs, and um, that did very well. We enrolled, you know, thousand two thousand people into that course. Um, and they started to see a lot of success, and that's because I have a background in education, so I built the courses well. And they started to come to me and ask a lot of questions around, well, how do I build my business? How do I build my audience? And so that led to a second course where I taught those things. And again, a lot of students went through it, and it did very well, and they would come to me and say, hey, I noticed something. I went through your courses, and they really helped me. And I've gone through a lot of other courses, and they didn't really help me. So what's going on? What are you doing differently? Can you teach me? And that led me to build the Course Builders Laboratory, which teaches people how to build and sell courses successfully and making an impact for their students. And I think we launched that in probably 2013, so quite a number of years ago. And it's been a great run. We've had many thousand students go through it. We've led that to a lot of impact and transformation for a lot of people. And it's been a privilege to be a part of that. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us um, how you did the uh, marketing aspect of uh, selling your course? I know you have built an audience, but how did you get the audience in the first place? Because I know, I know that uh, marketing the course and selling it is actually uh, one of the hardest things that people face or online mm -hmm. customers face. So would you mind telling us how you get that initial uh, traction? Your, how did you first build your audience, maybe your subscribers? How did you get the traffic? How you convince them that uh, you have something of value to offer them? Sure. So I, I can share what I did and I can share what I recommend to students. It's not exactly the same. Okay. Um, and I'll explain why. Um, but what I did was, you know, I started at the time um, doing a lot of guest posting on major blogs. So I would write articles for major blogs, and people would, you know, read the article and click back on the link at the bottom and visit my site and opt into my list. And I would slowly, slowly attract subscriber base. And I worked really hard. I published 84 posts in that first year, and I got, you know, seven or 800 subscribers through that. So good initial results, but really, really hard work. And that was a good base, a good core of an audience. But in doing all that work for all these blogs and creating that content and being on the ball and responsive, I was able to build relationships with the people who run those blogs. 
And so as my profile started to grow, and as I started having, you know, programs and products of value, I could say to them, you know, hey, we know that your audience likes my stuff because they've read my stuff and my articles have gone well for you. How about if I do a webinar for your audience? And so there was this constant ratcheting up of the process of engaging in sort of borrowed trust in other communities. Now, that's a great strategy for those for whom it's a good fit. But fundamentally, you know, different course creators are operating in different spheres. Not everyone is going to either want to be, you know, writing posts for lots of blogs, or maybe that's not their strength. They're great in another medium, but writing is not their core competence. And so it's not about copying the, the specific mechanisms. It's about finding the core engines that are going to work for you. So what I've seen, because you know, I've worked with thousands of course creators, helping them to build great courses and market them and grow their businesses. And what I see over and over is that when people struggle with marketing, they keep looking for different lead sources and they keep looking for different conversion mechanisms. They try a lot of different things. They don't perfect anything. And they never get to any substantial results. And in my experience, having one lead source that works well for you that you've dialed in and one conversion mechanism that works well that you've dialed in, that's all it takes to build a many six-figure business, sometimes a seven-figure business. And adding more lead sources, adding more conversion mechanisms is definitely something worth doing eventually, but it's more important to just find one of each and really dial them in based on what your strengths are and what will resonate with your audience. What do you think is the number one problem that these people face online course creators? Um, it depends which course creators. I mean, there are a lot of people who set out to create courses from different backgrounds and for different reasons. So for some people, it's the technology. They get very flustered with, what are all the things that I need to do? For some people, it is the marketing. How am I going to get customers? People who will pay me money for my courses. And for some people, it's the actual creation and production of the course, especially if they're real experts who tend to be plagued with a sense of perfectionism. Like, this has to be perfect, and it's very hard to get something off the ground that is perfect, because anything you do for the first time will not be perfect. So those are some of the common um, categories of major challenges that I see. Okay. And what would you suggest for, for these people um, to, to overcome these challenges? I mean, you talk about the marketing, you suggest that people... Uh, stick to one lead source first, and then after they have gone deep and dealt, get everything dealt in, they can ask, uh, they can find out the second lead source. Uh, what mm -hmm. about the other two problems uh, you mentioned just now, the tech uh, technology part, as well as the um, uh, perfectionist, like creating and producing? What would you, what was your, what would be your um, suggestion to these people? Yeah, so those are actually related challenges, right? Wanting to make it perfect on the technology front is just one incarnation of wanting to make it perfect, and that's a challenge, especially if you're not great with technology. But, you know, by definition, making something perfect is not hard if this is what you're amazing at and you've done all your life. But making something perfect that you were doing new is hard. And so the rule of thumb that I really try to encourage my students to stick to is to focus on minimum viable. And uh, there's a, an interesting shift, and it can be very counterintuitive, because when people set out to build online courses, the end goal is something that they can enroll student after student after student, and there's leverage and there's scale. Mm -hmm. But when you're first building a course, the goal is not leverage or scale, it's validation of assumptions. So 
I tell people, don't worry about scalability. Just worry about getting it done. Let's just get your first 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 students into the program and go through it and have a good result. And it doesn't have to be scalable at all. It doesn't have to be efficient at all. But first, let's make it work, and then we can make it better. And so don't worry about elaborate, fancy technology. Deliver it all manually if you have to. Right? Don't deal with things that you don't know how to do. In the scope of the course, focus on what is the, not, not what is all the good stuff I can teach, but what is the least that I can teach and still create a good outcome for my students. And likewise with the delivery, don't worry about a fancy polished delivery. Just get on a live call, kind of like we're having this conversation right now. Just deliver the content, and it'll be super inefficient, but you'll gather feedback. You'll learn what is working and what isn't, and then you can codify it later. Right, yeah, I agree with that. Um, many years ago, I have bought a course from, um, from a name expert, um, and this person also did what you said just now, Danny. So he, he didn't really care about the uh, technology part. He just delivered the content inside, um, inside a portal, a membership portal, but the membership portal actually, um, has the same, <laughs> has the same password. So essentially mm-hmm. he would just protect it with, um, with, um, what, 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 what would you call it? Um, um, a password that everyone has the same password. So and he, yeah. will, he will email out the password inside uh, his email or the responder. Hey, thank you for purchasing. Here's the password. And then <laughs> he just delivered the content. And this guy is actually um, has been in the industry for, I know I followed him and he still uses that. So I guess that that, that, that works well, uh, especially when you are starting out. Um, like you said, Danny, um, you, people are usually afraid. I mean, if they are not tech savvy, then they will have uh, major tech challenges. And um, even uh, like like the course I bought just now, he's already an expert in the topic. I follow him for a number of years, and he still uses that that method. So yeah, um, that prob- that is something that uh, people should think about because sometimes a lot of people overcomplicate things, especially with tech stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, um, Danny. So I heard that. Um, what do you think about? Um, I heard this somewhere that. Before you sell your online course, you actually need to be um, not. You actually uh, need to be delivering like a done for you service first in that area, so that you get to know that um, the the industry deep and the pains, the problems of uh, what your target audience is facing. Only then, after that, after you deliver the done for you service, then you'll be able to understand their pain points so much. Then you'll be able to create a much better course. What is your thoughts on that? Um, I don't know if I agree with the letter of that, but I agree with the spirit. So, you know, whether it's a done-for-you service or consulting or advisory or facilitation, or it doesn't really matter the format. But here's the thing, and this is where maybe I differ with some people in the industry. There are a lot of people who kind of like to pretend, oh, anyone can create an online course. Right? Just turn on a camera and talk, and if you don't know a lot about right. the topic, just read a few books. And, and I don't think that's true. I think if you're going to teach something, you need to know about it. <laughs> so I tell people, I can, I can help you develop a great course and market it and turn it into a business around your expertise, but you have to come with expertise. And so it's not that you have to have delivered a done-for-you service, but you have to know the subject matter well enough and have worked with the students and worked with the clients and worked with the audience. You have to understand the real needs and the real solution. Right. The first time you shouldn't be like, you know, well, I've thought about this idea. I think I'm going to give a course about it. I've never done it myself. I've never helped anyone with it, but I think I'll teach it. 
right? So there needs to be that validation step. So does it need to be a done-for-you service? Not necessarily, but you have to have had the opportunity to give your, your knowledge and your skills and your ideas a field test in the real world to make sure that it actually works and you understand both how to make it work and what the boundary conditions are. Mm, right, yeah. Because there's no strategy that will work for everyone all the time, and that's fine, but you have to know when it won't. Right, So you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, you can have um, a great idea for a nutrition system. Right, and you know it's vegan or paleo or whatever, and that will work for most people. But it won't work for people who have certain allergies, for example. Mm. Right, and you won't know that. You won't know what the edges are. Who are the people this won't work for until you do some testing in the world? So, just getting that level of of knowledge and immersion before you decide to codify it, I think, is very important. Right. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, this is related to 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 the previous question. Um, what if you're not like um, an expert? I know you said that you don't really uh, agree with the people. Hey, anyone can become an online course creator and just teach people stuff. Um, do you, because there are a lot of sources that says that um, like uh, the idea is the same as just now, like you said, uh, anyone can create a course and you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to be an expert. I, I'm sure you heard, heard of this a lot of times, Danny. You don't have to be an expert to create an online course. Is that um, what is the well? What are your thoughts about that? I think that's nonsense. I think so. Here's the thing: it depends how you define expertise, right? Because the funny thing about expertise is that often the more of an expert you are, the more insecure you feel about your expertise. Because you know it's the Socrates thing: the more I know, the more I know that I don't know. Right, and the person who has a PhD knows that he doesn't have the other four PhDs. So, like, there's that gap, and so you don't have to be the world's leading expert, but you do have to know substantially more than your students. Right, if you want to build a course about a topic and you feel like your first step is going to be to read a couple of books about the topic, you don't know enough about it. Mm. Um. That doesn't mean you can't deliver any course. It means you can't deliver a course on that topic. And you want to just think about from the perspective of the student. If you tell them honestly, this is how much I know about the topic, and this is how much I've learned, and this is how much I know more than you do or don't know more than you do. If you're honest with them and they know that, would they still want to take your course? Right? And so if you've been doing this for 10 years and you feel like there's still a lot that you don't know, well, if you have 10 years of experience, that's still compelling. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, if you're teaching a course about yoga because you started doing yoga three months ago, then I don't think the students would appreciate that. So that should really be the litmus test. Like, do you legitimately know enough that, you can, that, that you're the best person to be helping them? Cool. So, Danny, if you can only give one advice to people who want to build a successful online course business, what would that be? Um, so there's a thought exercise that I give people because often when, when people are thinking about, I want to build an online course, they're thinking about the subject matter and they go way too broad. Or they are thinking about themselves and what they want in their business. And they're thinking, you know, they're not thinking about the student at all. So. What I encourage people to do is imagine this exercise. Pretend you're, you're about to get on a plane. You're in New York. You're about to get on a plane, and you're flying to Chicago. So it's a little more than a two-hour flight. 
And just as the plane is taxiing down the runway, you strike up a conversation with the person sitting next to you. And you discover that they are your ideal student. This is exactly the kind of person that you want to help. And they really need your help. They're in trouble. They really need your help. And you're getting along, and you're a nice person. You want to help them. But here's the thing. You haven't created your course yet, so you can't just say, well, go take my course. And you're very busy, and they're very busy. So once the plane lands, you're going in your separate directions. So if you want to help them, you have about two hours of the flight to help them. So I would ask, what can you share? What can you teach in those two hours that would change their life? And if you have a good answer to that, that is a template a base of what you're going to build your course around. And if you don't have a good answer to that, then keep working on a good answer before you start building your course. Hmm. Interesting. I like that. All right, Danny, I think that's all for today's episode. It was a great, uh, I had a great time and I'm sure that the listeners will have find great value in this as well. So uh, if people want to get to know about uh, your work, like uh, maybe your online course, they can, because this audience is for online course creators, uh, which perfectly match your audience. So if they want to get to know about your work and your course, where, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, I would love that. And thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, I would encourage them to visit our website, which is miracee.com, miracee. And uh, there's places where they can opt in and get a whole bunch of free information and training. And if they want to go a little more in-depth, they can find uh, my books on Amazon. The two books they might want to look at are Leveraged Learning, which is more about the broader disruption in education, and Teach and Grow Rich, which is specifically about building and selling online courses. All right. Cool, Danny. One last question before I let you go. Uh, what is the meaning of Miracy? So Miracy is um, a coined name, which means we made it up, mm-hmm. um, which means that nobody can sue me for using it. <laughs> um, but uh, it is based on Latinate roots. So in, in Latinate languages, mm-hmm. Mira means to, to see or to look or to wonder. Mm-hmm. And in English, of course, see is to, to see. And so without saying it explicitly, Miracy connotes um, wondering at what could be, wondering at what you might see, what you might create. Okay, makes sense. All right. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah. Um, thank you again, Danny. It's a great pleasure to have you. Likewise, thank you for having me on the show. If you're not listening to this on our website, go to academy.birdsend.co slash eight to get your show notes. This show is brought to you by Birdsend Email Marketing Tool, the only email marketing tool specifically created for online course creators. Get your free forever account at birdsend.co. That's bird as in the flying bird and send as in sending emails, birdsend.co.